Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, Stucker you here. And before today's episode begins, I just want to give you a heads up about two things. One, what today's episode is, and simultaneously, news updates that are happening with the actual podcast itself. So first off, today's episode. You've probably already guessed because of the title, but today's episode is a bonus episode. And what it is that we have been trying to do is upload episodes that are audio from the YouTube episodes that we have been uploading for the History of Everything podcast YouTube page. These are bonus episodes that are of substantial size and can go up as audio episodes, and this is something that we're going to be now releasing every single Friday. I say Friday because the episode itself that is normally released each week for the podcast is now something that is going to be coming out on Monday. This is something that is needed both for the purpose of editing audio in order to make sure that everything is properly set and simultaneously to get things set up for the week for the purpose of analytics for the podcast. We need to make sure that everything in there is properly set up. So that is just a heads up about what is happening. Starting here this next week, you are actually going to be having a episode, the actual podcast episode that goes out on Monday. But this episode that you're listening to now here for Friday, well, this is a bonus episode. So without further ado, thank you very much for listening to this little bit, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Oh, and I almost forgot. Remember that giant announcement about Peru? Yeah, that is actually today. The Peru trip goes live today, and there are a very limited number of spots. So if you want to join, by all means do so. We're going to be exploring Machu Picchu and so many other fun locations. And simultaneously, this is the cheapest trip that we have managed to make. I did everything possible to drive down the cost as low as possible for this thing. So by all means, sign up, have some fun with us, and I cannot wait to explore the world with you all and learn some history. Hello, my friends, Sakuya here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into the history of snipers and how they changed warfare as it is that we know it. Because if we look at things today, today snipers are recognized as an incredibly important part of any modern infantry force. But this was not always the case. It took a long time for efficiency and combat effectiveness of snipers to be truly realized and implemented in the modern battlefield. And while every infantry soldier does indeed have a deep personal relationship with their weapon, this is especially the case when it comes to snipers and their rifles. The techniques of sniping have developed alongside technological advances in sniper rifles so that the sniper rifle is actually best regarded as not just a weapon, but rather an extension of the sniper's body. When looking at the fighter themselves, a well-trained and experienced sniper is an amazingly efficient fighter, especially in comparison to the average infantry soldier. And there is a big reason as to why these types of soldiers have oftentimes been romanticized in games and movies over the years. Really, when we are looking at this, the numbers do not lie. Back during World War II, the average number of bullets that had to be fired in order to be able to kill one soldier was around 20 to 25,000. And that number was only ever increasing after that war. Only a few years later, by the time of the Korean War, that number would almost double to 40 to 50,000 bullets. 
And then by the time that we get to the Vietnam War, considering the advancements in automatic weaponry, you're talking about approximately 150 to 200,000 rounds fired to kill one enemy combatant, which is kind of a lot, but it gets even worse. Because some estimates when looking at modern warfare say that the rate has gone up to even 250,000 bullets. It takes a quarter of a million rounds approximately fired in order to be able to take out one enemy combatant. But in comparison, for a sniper, the average is 1.3 bullets. And the remarkable efficiency that has been achieved here is not something that has just been done through ever-improving training and techniques, but simultaneously through the evolution and development of the sniper rifle itself. Though, at the same time, I do feel like I should go ahead and clarify something about the stats that I just gave. With the arrival of automatic weapons and with them becoming significantly more common, the rate of hits upon an enemy naturally sharply decreased. Because lo and behold, if you're firing huge amounts of ammunition in the general direction of an enemy and you're firing very quickly, then you're not really likely to hit everything. But that all being said, just because automatic weapons hit less does not mean that they were any less effective at fighting battles. That is definitely not the case. After all, hit rates at the end of the day are not what truly matters. Winning the battle is what matters. And generally speaking, whichever side is able to lug more rounds downrange faster, well, that is typically the side that is going to end up winning. Not always, but it is a common enough trend. Like as an example that I'm sure that many of you are already familiar with, you have the concept of suppressive fire, that being when a gun is purposely fired in the general direction of an enemy, but not necessarily trying to hit them, because the primary purpose of it is not to hit them, it's to make sure that they are too afraid to actually move from said position. And so what that is going to do is it's going to force the enemy to keep their head down, so that if you, as an example, are trying to advance upon an enemy, they're not able to come out from behind cover in order to be able to fire upon you, or if an enemy is a advancing, then by firing in their general direction, that is going to stop them from moving because they don't want to get hit. Thus, oftentimes, suppressive fire, even if you do not hit an enemy at all after firing thousands of rounds, well, that is an essential ingredient in an attack in order to be able to take a specific position. So again, you didn't really need to kill your enemy per se. Just stopping them from moving or really doing anything could oftentimes be more than enough to win a battle. But snipers, well, snipers were typically capable of doing this with significantly less waste of bullets. And from this, I would argue that the development of the sniper is something that is definitely one of the most effective developments in modern times in war. A sniper, as we have seen many times over the centuries, could change history as we know it, whether that be from political assassinations or just key actions in battles. And there are several key examples of precisely this, as back during the American Civil War, an unidentified Confederate sniper shot Major General John Sedgwick during the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse. The shooting of Sedgwick would go on to cause administrative delays in the Union Army, and from this lead to a Confederate victory. Around 30 years later, you would have Major Frederick Russell Burnham assassinate a Nobele religious leader in his cave in Motobo Hills, Rhodesia, effectively ending the Second Matabele War of 1896. Snipers, upon being introduced, really changed everything about warfare. But I guess the question is, at that point, how exactly did we get there? Well, join me, my friends, as we go into a deep dive into the history and development of one of people's favorite sweaty choices when it comes to things like Call of Duty, snipers. Of course, I'm talking about snipers. You, you all know exactly what it is that I'm referring to here. Ah, here come the downvotes. Well, either way, my friends, if we were going to be talking about the sniper, then of course that means that we need to be talking about the weapon that is going to be utilized by the soldier in the first place, the sniper rifle or I guess in this case, just the rifle first. 
I am sure that the majority of you who are watching this right now are already aware of what a rifle is, but to explain it, a rifle is a long-barreled firearm that is specifically designed for accurate shooting and high stopping power, with a barrel that has a helical pattern of grooves or rifling that has been cut into the bore wall. In keeping with their focus on accuracy, rifles are then typically designed to be held with both hands and braced firmly against the shooter's shoulders via a buttstock for stability during shooting. Which, yeah, oh my god, of course, stability and accuracy are very important for a gun. Yeah, I know, I know how shocking this is. I bet that none of you, none of you knew that I was going to be saying any of that. But hey, even when we're talking about something like the simple stock, the stock is something that is a technological development. The stock is the part of the gun that is placed against the shoulder in order to be able to facilitate aiming and recoil management. And these stocks could really be made out of anything, wood, plastic, metal, depending upon the manufacturer, the time period, anything that we are talking about, it is still kind of serving the same functional role that it has for centuries. Of course, when we're talking about stocks, stocks are not things that are exclusive to rifles. They're used in submachine guns, they're used in shotguns, machine guns, even pistols in some cases. But it still is a really important development for the purpose of a gun. Like this entire video that we're doing right now is not a history on just firearms in general, but the precursor to what we would have for rifles or modern firearms, when you look at like the old hand cannons that were used in medieval Europe, it was literally a tube on a stick that you held a match to and went boom. That That is a hand cannon. It is a cannon that you held with your hands and a pole. There was no such thing as a stock. But the development that you would see after the hand cannon would be the arquebus, and the arquebus is a long-barreled matchlock weapon. Or I guess long-barreled in this case could be relative, as you could have ones that were relatively short or long, depending upon the creator, because really at this point in time in the 15 and 1600s, none of this stuff was standardized. But importantly, it was a gun that you could actually hold against your shoulder and aim it to fire it. But that all being said, even if you could aim the arquebus, that did not mean that the weapon was actually going to hit what you were pointing at. Not by a long shot. And, and no, that, that's not a pun. I just mean that it, it was almost impossible to be able to hit anything at any kind of real distance, no matter what you may see in any kind of comics or movies or anything else. It was just luck at that point. And the reason for that is because firearms at this time were smooth bores, meaning that the tube that the projectile was fired from did not have any grooves on the inside called rifling. And since the projectile being fired from the barrel was smaller than the barrel itself, that meant that it was going to bounce around inside of the barrel as it was fired and create a wobble as it exited from the mouth of the barrel, which was, naturally speaking, going to severely hurt its accuracy. Now, to many people that are first learning history, looking at this, it sounds pretty bad, and I do get that, especially when you consider the sheer technological scope, again, no puns intended, even though we're talking about sniper rifles, of today's weapons, which are almost all exclusively rifled. A rifled weapon is one in which he grooves have been formed in the barrel, which impart a spin onto a projectile along its axis. The spin is something that creates gyroscopic stability, which improves the aerodynamic properties and therefore the accuracy of the fired projectile. And even though we are talking about things in terms of smoothbores, rifling was invented relatively quickly after the development of the guns. We're talking being developed all the way back in the 15th century in Germany, which was a key place where gun manufacturers were pumping out massive amounts of firearms in order to be able to give to princes that were constantly fighting one another in the Holy Roman Empire. It was a very common thing at that time. So the question 
question that a lot of people have then at this point is, all right, well, if they had rifling, if they knew that this was something that increased the accuracy of a weapon and you want a weapon that can actually hit the target that you are aiming at in the first place, why not do that everywhere? Well, the short answer is because it was freaking expensive, not to mention hard. Due to the fact that guns were just really freaking expensive, it meant that this additional cost in order to be creating something that was rifled was just not something that many people were willing to pay. Not to mention the fact that rifled weapons at this time were just all around slower. I'm going to go into this in more detail later, but the short of it is that the round that would fit into a rifle was more snugly fit in the rifle, which meant that it was much harder to get into and took longer to reload. And in war, taking some extra time is oftentimes a death sentence. So if a commander had a choice of five men armed with smoothbore muskets or one who was armed with a rifle, which would equate about to the same in terms of cost, then that commander was definitely going to go with the smoothbore nine times out of ten, at least when it came to battles. You see, my friends, when we were talking about the problems of these weapons, the black powder that was used in early muzzle-loading rifles very quickly fouled the barrel, making loading slower and even more difficult, particularly when it came to rifles and their more snug fit. The greater range of the rifle was considered to be of little practical use, since the smoke from black powder would very quickly obscure the battlefield and made it almost impossible to actually be able to aim the weapon from a distance. Everything was, after all, covered in a kind of smoke screen, and so there wasn't really anything for you to aim at. But that is not really something that would affect the average musketman who is going to be fighting significantly closer. Due to the lack of accuracy, soldiers were deployed in long lines, thus being line infantry, in order to be able to fire at opposing forces within 50 to 100 yards of each other. And when you're fighting that close, precise aim is just not something that is necessary to hit an opponent. Muskets would be used for relatively rapid firing and imprecise aimed volley fire. And from that, an average soldier could very easily be trained to use them. And so since musketeers couldn't really afford to take the time to stop and clean their barrels in the middle of a close range battle, rifles just were not going to be as useful. They could only really be used by sharpshooters and non-military uses like in the case of hunting. And it is here that we start to see the prototype of what would eventually evolve into the sniper, the Jaeger, along with the Jaeger rifle. There is nothing that I was able to find that confirms this theory, but one of the earliest theories about the history of Jaegers is that the earliest known Jaeger unit was a company that was formed in the 17th century in Hesha Castle, which was under William V, Landgrave of Hesha Castle. Supposedly, this was an elite light infantry unit that was formed for the Hessian army, and yes, we're talking about the state with the famous Hessian mercs from the American Revolution, and this was formed around a core that was drawn from his personal staff of gameskeepers, these being the game preserve hunters. Because these were individuals that already had skills as hunters, they made perfect light infantry, individuals that were capable of scouting at picking off at enemy targets from great distances, and in general, for reconnaissance and obtaining information. The equivalent for the English-speaking word at this time for proto-snipers would be rangers, but rangers, when we are talking about those, even though I'm showing an image here of modern military units, this is something that was more commonly associated with the New World America, like with colonial times. If we look at their history, rangers had served in the 17th and 18th century wars that existed between the American colonists and Native American tribes. British regulars were, typically speaking, unaccustomed to frontier warfare, and so ranger companies were developed in order to be able to fight these specific battles. Rangers had a tendency to be full-time soldiers that would be employed by colonial governments, and these were used to patrol between fixed frontier fortifications for reconnaissance missions and for providing early warnings of raids. When they were utilized in offensive operations, they could be used as scouts and guides, locating villages and other targets for task forces that were drawn from militia and other colonial troops. 
And it's with these two types of forces that we really start to see the early kinds of rifles that would eventually become sniper rifles come into play, the Jaeger rifles. And this is something in history that is definitely unique, because unlike the smoothbore weapons that were used by most other soldiers and hunters, the lands and grooves of the Jaeger's rifle would end up spinning the ball as it left the barrel, which gave it a far greater accuracy in flight. A Jaeger was generally something that was 40 to 45 inches in length, it would weigh between 9 to 11 pounds, and it would fire a round that was between 50 and 70 caliber. Now, of course, when we're talking about this, as I said, it is something that is painfully slow to reload, especially in comparison to a musket. And a musket is still something that is slow to reload. The ball that would go inside one of these weapons and with the way that the barrel was designed was so tight that generally speaking, instead of just inserting the ball and then pounding it down, what you would have to first do is hit it with a hammer inside of the barrel and then proceed to use a ramming rod afterwards in order to be able to get it down. And that is something that not only took a large amount of time, but simultaneously simultaneously is something that could deform the ball, which would in turn affect the accuracy of the round. And because these weapons were utilizing a larger round that had a tighter fit inside of a barrel, that meant that it needed a larger charge in order to be able to fire. And more powder is not necessarily a problem when you are in Europe, but if you're in the Americas, well, that is something that is significantly harder to come by. The shorter length of the barrel meant that it was easier to reload when you had to utilize a hammer in Europe, but all the other factors just meant that it wasn't really practical when looking at things in a new world setting. So, when the Jaeger came to America, America would change it. What would end up happening is that the German-speaking Jaeger users in southeast Pennsylvania were soon introduced to the English fowling piece, which was a smoothbore that was used for hunting small game in Britain, and these were things that were generally speaking between 55 and 70 inches in length, weighing 7 to 8 pounds, and firing around between 31 and 45 caliber. In other words, they were almost the polar opposite of the Jaeger rifle in every way, shape, and form imaginable. And then... Something magical happened. Sometime around 1730 or so, immigrant gunsmiths that were living in certain counties within Pennsylvania ended up combining these two weapons and developing a kind of hybrid that would suit the unique needs of frontiersmen for whom hunting was not something that was just simply a sport utilized by English gentlemen. Oh, no, no, no. This was a necessity for their very way of life. Instead of having a ball hug the rifle's grooves directly, the new weapon would instead employ a leather patch that was greased with lamb tallow. By utilizing a patch, this would eliminate the need for a mallet and drastically shorten the loading time. The patch would also simultaneously reduce the escape of gases, increasing the hitting power, and the patch would end up exiting the barrel with the round and immediately just fall away. And this was a particularly effective weapon because in the hands of a competent marksman, a Pennsylvania rifle, or what would later then be called a Kentucky rifle, this was something that had an effective range of approximately 200 yards against an individual. And this is really an incredible feat, because musket balls that were fired at man-sized targets from 100 yards away, generally speaking, when fired from a smoothbore, would hit them around 50% of the time or less. That was not the case when it came to a rifle. There are stories of the effectiveness and skill when it comes to riflemen, such as that of the Shane brothers of Captain Michael Cressop's company of rifle that gave a demonstration as to what exactly was expected of a skilled rifleman in the year 1775. What they would do is firing from 60 yards away at a 5 by 7 inch square piece of board atop a 5 foot pole, each brother was able to put 8 out of 8 rounds into the center of the target. The target, which had the likeness of a man's face drawn in on charcoal. That's right my friends, they were practicing headshots. 
which is something that when we were looking at the effectiveness of guns at this time is truly impressive, but how exactly is that going to be utilized for warfare? As I said earlier, musketmen were still going to be the mainstays of any army, but going into the 18th century, riflemen and sharpshooters were now able to take out high-value targets that before in the previous centuries, this is something that would have seemed like practically an impossibility, but now was a reality, such as is in the case of the Battle of Saratoga, which occurred back during the American Revolution. Which, guys, I'm going to say this right now, but it's really hard to overestimate just how important the Battle of Saratoga was back in the year 1777, as this was a massive boost for the American push towards independence. Really, no one at this time expected the Americans to beat two of the British Crown's best generals in North America and turn the invasion of New York back to Canada, but they did. In the days that followed, General Horatio Gates would be propelled to stardom, becoming a national hero for the Americans. With some people even declaring that, hey, George Washington has not exactly had many uh, good moments up until this time. Maybe it is Horatio Gates who instead should actually be the one who takes charge of the entire army. This is also the battle that would ultimately end up compelling the French to be willing to support the Americans in their bid for independence, supplying them with money, with powder, with guns, with men, with everything that you actually need to run a war. America at this point was effectively bankrolled by the French, and it happened specifically because of this battle. And one of the major points of this battle that made it so decisive was specifically the action of an American sniper, or what we could say a proto-sniper, killing a British officer. And if the actions of that sniper guaranteed the decisiveness of the battle, which in turn guaranteed the support of the French, then that means that that sniper, the action of sniping, is something that effectively changed the world. But okay, in order to be able to explain that, I'm going to need to be able to explain the Battle of Saratoga. Saratoga first so that people understand what it is that I am talking about. What we know of today as the Battle of Saratoga was actually two separate battles. The Continental Army in the area was reeling from the loss at Fort Ticonderoga from earlier that year, and General Horatio Gates was given command of the army in New York and received some much-needed help from General Washington. Meanwhile, the British under General John Burgoyne were moving south from Quebec, and he was facing his own problems. He had lost most of his native allies, and the approaching winter meant that he either needed to retreat from New York or advance into Albany, and he decided to maintain his strength, cut his communications and his supply lines from the north, and instead move towards Albany. Burgoyne was hopeful at this time that he could be bolstered by men and supplies from General Sir Henry Clinton's army that was moving from New York City, so he would go and press onwards, and eventually would meet Gates at Saratoga, and outside of Saratoga, at a place called Freeman's Farm on September 19th, 17. And this was a battle that didn't necessarily go well for the Americans. When we are talking about the best fighters in the Continental Army on that day at Freeman's Farm, then it definitely has to be Daniel Morgan sharpshooters. These were individuals who picked off so many officers, so many artillerymen, that the Americans were able to then advance and capture the British guns which was huge, even if this was only a temporary advance at that time. But that being said, snipers were still not something at this point that were going to be capable of turning the tide of the battle in their favor, and the British would end up holding. Before the two armies would again clash on October 7th, 1777, Burgoyne realized that help from Clinton was not actually going to happen. And so the Battle of Saratoga was a necessary win. The British had to win this battle in order to be able to succeed in their invasion of upstate New York. But meanwhile, the American defenders were still being bolstered with new soldiers, and at the same time, Morgan sharpshooters were wreaking havoc upon the British lines. And so Burgoyne, low on rations and now outnumbered, decided that he had to go on the offensive, attacking the Americans at Bemis Heights. And this was something that was a critical point of battle that was centered on the American left flank, a place where the British were attacking with grenadiers and bayonet charges. 
Still, Morgan snipers were able to single-handedly keep the British from moving westward in order to support a British advance, and Burgoyne himself was almost killed three times by a marksman. And while it is that he would survive, one of his commanders would not. That being General Simon Fraser. Reportedly, it was an American frontiersman by the name of Timothy Murphy who fired the shot that had killed Fraser on October 7th, 1777. He was a well-liked and a capable leader, and Fraser was at that moment in the act of rallying his troops when he was struck down. Had he actually succeeded and managed to rally a troops, he very well might have delayed the decisive American victory at Saratoga, or achieved some nominal degrees of success that would have stopped it from being so incredibly decisive and thus maybe hindered French support for the United States. Maybe. At this point, we're all talking about hypotheticals and really who knows what it is that could happen at that point because old history gets pretty weird there. But Murphy's weapon, as we discussed, was the lighter Kentucky or Pennsylvania rifle that was used by most of the 500 men of the American General Daniel Morgan's Corps of Riflemen. The nickname that this weapon had at the time was the Widowmaker for the British, which the name, of course, came from its penchant of clipping off the lives of British officers. But how did the death of Fraser happen? Well, back during the battle, as we discussed, Fraser's regulars eventually had driven off Morgan's riflemen with bayonets in the opening round of Saratoga at Freeman's Farms on September 19th. But when the battle resumed at Bemis Heights on October 7th, Morgan's immediate superior, Benedict Arnold, would assign his subordinates best marksmen to remove Fraser from the fight. They knew that he was a threat and they wanted to specifically take him out. So from his perch, 10 feet up high in a pine tree, Murphy would fire his first shot to try and find the range, which then turned out to be 300 yards. Something that arguably was a formidable distance even for a skilled rifleman, considering that we had said that the effective range of a rifle at this time was 200 yards. The next shot, an aimed one, would end up severing the bridle of Fraser's horse, and the next after that would pass to the rear of Fraser's head and kill one of his aides. Several officers at the time would beg Fraser to please, please dismount and stop being such a target, but Fraser refused. He wasn't going to step away because in his mind, his men needed him and he needed to be in public for people to see him to command his troops. The next round would then immediately strike him in the chest and he would fall from his horse and die. When we are talking about a moment like this in history, it is easily one of the most famous early sniper uses in warfare and this is something that would only evolve with time. After all, although these riflemen were definitely crack shots, there is no way that I'm going to discount that. Simultaneously, this is something that could hardly be called a sniper in comparison to what we have in the modern day and age. And it is definitely a far cry of what would come after. Over the course of the early 19th century, the tradition of skilled marksmen engaging as snipers or skirmishers is something that would continue, but it really wouldn't see all that much change. After all, other than the advent of the percussion cap, as well as some evolution in rifle design, really not all that much changed over the course of the next 50 or 60 years for tactics and gear. Line warfare was still the dominant form of combat with troops that were, for the most part, armed with muskets. It would take the invention of the conical minier ball in 1849 to make rifles more common in military usage, at least to be on par, if not more than with smoothbores. And this, I am telling you right now, for anyone who is familiar with things in history, this is a game changer. The conical ball that we are talking about here was something that was smaller, and it had an expanding base, which allowed it to be more easily loaded, even if you were using a bore that was, relatively speaking, fouled. 
And then what happened when the ammunition was fired is that the base would expand, allowing for the round to catch the grooves of the rifle and impart a spin onto it. Remember what we were talking about earlier when it came to rifle ammunition, how those early rifles had to have a ball that fits snugly within the rifle or utilize a patch of leather in order to be able to create a proper seal for it? Well, those were things that were useful, but simultaneously ended up drastically slowing the rate at which one of those weapons could be fired. With a conical ball that was smaller, this meant that this could be easily loaded inside of the weapon that you were trying to fire and then fire it at roughly the same speed as you would a smoothbore, which means that in terms of a difference between smoothbore and rifle, the only real difference now was going to be the more expensive cost of the machining needing to make the rifle in the first place. After that, they were significantly more cost-effective and useful on a battlefield. At the same time that weapons became more accurate because of developments within ammunition, they also became more accurate because in the 1840s, you saw the introduction of telescopic sights. Of course, at the time, we're not talking about things that are necessarily all that accurate in comparison to what would come later, but still that is a huge development for those that are trying to fire something accurately. And of course, going into this time period, we're not just talking about muzzle loaders anymore. At this point, you are also starting to see more breech loaders become more common. And so for the first time going into the 1850s, you had soldiers that could carry a scoped, breech-loading, cartridge-fired rifle, something that was capable of firing accurately, something that was capable of firing fast, and something that was capable of changing history and warfare as we knew it. And that is going to then bring us into the American Civil War. When talking about monumental moments in history, the Civil War may have been the first war in which scoped rifles were properly used in combat. On the Confederate side, you had the famed British-made Whitworth rifle that was the rifle of choice for snipers, and arguably, this was the most accurate rifle of its time. The Whitworth made use of a polygon rifling system and was used with and without scopes by Confederate snipers, and on the Union side, you had the Sharps rifle that was the most popular sniper weapon, and again, was used with or without options. Optics. Now, I'm talking about these things in terms of favorites, but you have to understand that when we're talking about an event like the Civil War, there really was no standardization when it ever came around to snipers or optics or anything that were utilized. You pretty much used whatever it is that you could get your hands on and could properly then use. After all, the Confederacy did prize the very expensive and very difficult to acquire Whitworth rifle. It was something that they wanted as many of them as they possibly could get, which, relatively speaking, was extremely few. They would only give these things to the absolute best marksman in the army, because if you were looking at things in terms of a total number, they maybe only ever had 20 of these or so that were ever fit with any kind of optics. These 45 caliber rifles would use special bullets that were molded to match the rifling of the bore, and they could be fired with a harder alloy than simple soft lead, meaning that these were sniper weapons that were effective even against targets that were protected by some light cover, like a fence or even metal. The Whitworth was something that shot straighter and further than any other rifle of the era, something along the lines of 2,000 yards. And Confederate snipers were ordered to only engage high-value targets, such as was the case with officers or artillerymen or things like that, because there was literally no reason that they could risk a weapon that was so incredibly valuable being utilized on just simple line infantry. Which, yeah, funny little detail, as I mentioned earlier when talking about this thing, but it's actually one of the Whitworth rifles that is the thing that took down General John Sedgwick, which I'll tell the story of now. The guy that you can see behind me here is Major General John Sedgwick, who is an individual that is the guy that I covered back in the early days when I first started doing stuff with TikTok and YouTube for one of my first dumb events in history, which for many of them was dumb ways that people ended up dying. 
And this was a guy who, despite his death, was definitely one of the most experienced and competent officers in the Army of the Potomac during the American Civil War. He was an individual that was greatly loved and respected by his men, and they didn't want anything to happen to him. But then I guess that kind of sucks for them. You see, what had happened was that Sedgwick was placed in command of the 6th Corps of the Union, which he had led at Chancellorville and at Gettysburg. And by the time of the Overland Campaign in the American Civil War, he was the Army's highest-ranking officer, only after Major General George Meade. What would happen is that the 6th Corps would arrive at Spotsylvania on the afternoon of May 8th after a severe march. After dark, it would take its place in the center of the Union line, and its right flank would be resting on Brock Road. Warren's 5th Corps was on Sedgwick's right, and Hancock's 2nd Corps would eventually extend to the line to the left. Sedgwick would then establish his headquarters 100 feet or so from this spot, and two guns of Battery H, the 1st New York Artillery, stood where two branches of Brock Road met. Now, because we are talking about something at this point that is artillery, naturally speaking, that is going to be a key point that the Confederates are going to want to take out, and that is precisely what was happening. Confederate sharpshooters had been peppering the area all morning on May 9th, which wounded, among others, General William Morris. Because this was an area where an officer could very easily be taken out, the people inside of the camp with John Sedgwick specifically asked him, hey, please do not go to this area, please do not do this, because you could potentially get shot. But you know, I guess you can't keep a great man down, and so John Sedgwick went over to the line anyway while trying to fix an issue with his line of men. And when his men turned around and told him, hey, make sure to take cover, he responded with a very famous quote that is still something that I love to repeat to this day for dumb events in history. Ah, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And these were John Sedgwick's final words before a bullet would crash into his skull right below his left eye, killing him instantly. Yeah, uh, dumb events in history, you know. Now, I'm telling that very famous story because early snipers were something that were very important to the South and the Confederacy. And the Southern Confederacy was, interestingly enough, one of the first states in the world to recognize the value of having snipers perform independently, as in not part of a unit, not moving up with other groups of soldiers, but instead acting as their own kind of independent force to be able to engage targets that were deemed to be high value. And before you think, oh man, that is really smart. How did they come up with that? Well, the reality of the situation is more like they were kind of forced into doing things that way because they couldn't really afford to have entire units of snipers in the first place. In comparison to the South, the heavily industrialized northern United States really didn't have much of a problem with fielding multiple regiments, and I mean full regiments of just sharpshooters, individuals who could either act independently or could act as a group of trained marksmen that specifically would be meant to deliver withering fire against enemies in concentrated positions, which they could then do handily with their very own sharps rifle. Which I suppose at that point is talking about something that is a little bit of a difference in doctrine, because on the Confederate side, you have such a value a weapon that cannot be risked being lost to the enemy or to lose in general, which means that you're going to have to utilize it to take out only high-value targets. Meanwhile, the North, which is able to produce more of these weapons, is able to use them in a larger concentration in order to be able to break through specific spots on the battlefield where the fighting may be potentially very hazardous. And the Sharps rifle is definitely something that was going to be able to make that possible. I mean, just look at it. Look at this absolutely beautiful weapon. I, sim I simply love it. It's just... Mwah. The Model 1859 Sharps rifle was something that fired a 52 caliber conical bullet in a paper cartridge. And because this was utilized with a falling block breech loader, the Sharps was capable of firing at an extraordinarily higher rate than the Whitworth. And when you combine with the famous Sharps accuracy, even if this was not as accurate as when you were utilizing a Whitford, 
whatever, then this means that the Model 1859 was an extremely lethal weapon, especially in the hands of Union snipers that were able to produce them in significantly higher quantities. I mean, seriously, when we were talking about things of gun versus guns, this is the equivalent of choosing between a $500 stake and a $1,000 stake. Yes, both things are very expensive, but you are not really going to be able to see as much of a difference there, and I would rather get two $500 stakes than $1,000 stake, because that's simply not going to be worth it at that point. Then again, I say that right now, and it's not exactly like I would want to spend $1,000 on a stake anyway, or two stakes. I wouldn't want to spend that much on any amount of stake. This might have been a bad comparison. Either way, you get what it is that I mean. The Union was capable of getting more of their money's worth out of the Sharps than the South was out of their Whitworths. And it is here that things really begin to change. Lines were the dominant form of battle really up until this point, but you were starting to see more skirmishing tactics being utilized here, with forces that were actually spread out over a greater distance so that they were not immediately next to one another shoulder to shoulder and got shot by just a person that was 300 yards away able to accurately fire with a rifle. Because we've talked about snipers at this point, but even the average soldier at this point is utilizing a rifled musket, even if it's not as specialized as what would be called snipers. And so, as the 19th century wore on, skirmishing tactics and looser lines became significantly more common as guns had gotten significantly more accurate. So really, when it comes to things with a sniper rifle, there wasn't all that much of a difference here between that and the regular guns that were being utilized by the army. That is, of course, until the 20th century and the World Wars would come about. And although sharpshooters would exist on all sides, the Germans specifically would equip some of their soldiers with scoped rifles so that they were capable of picking off enemy soldiers that were shown their heads out of the trench. At first, looking at this, the French and the British believed that such hits were coincidental. After all, so many bullets were being fired at the time that it makes sense if a couple lucky shots here or there would end up hitting the enemy. But no, eventually they would discover that the Germans were utilizing scoped rifles to great effect. As a result of this, during this time, the German army would receive a reputation for deadliness and efficiency of its snipers, partly because of the high-quality lenses that German industry could manufacture that were most certainly superior to what the Entente was capable of producing. And this is something that is very important that needs to be addressed because people may think that when they are looking at World War I and the advent of modern technology and repeatable firearms, that it was machine guns that made No Man's Land such an incredibly deadly place to go into. And to a degree, that is correct, but that is only really correct during attacks. If an enemy is storming a position by launching thousands of troops over a trench wall running across no man's land into machine gun lines, then yes, they are going to absolutely get mowed down. That is true. But oh, the sniper. Now, the sniper was the true terror of the battlefield at this time because death could come at any point, whether you wished it, whether you didn't, whether you thought it was there, whether you didn't, none of that mattered. You could die offense or defense at any point. And both sides knew this and would employ massive amounts of them and try to take out as many enemy snipers as they possibly could. All of the soldiers inside of World War I knew that any given moment they could possibly die from a sniper, and so there was a variety of different techniques that they tried to utilize in order to be able to weed out exactly where enemy snipers were. And one of these is the thing that you can see behind me here, utilizing fake papier-mâché heads. You see, what would happen is that those soldiers would create a head, something out of papier-mâché or some other kind of material, but the more realistic, the better, and this is something that they would use in order to try and draw in enemy fire. Now, of course, not every enemy is going to immediately take the bait, 
leaked because there was a very real possibility of this being fake. So one of the techniques that they had in order to give the appearance of this dummy fake head being real was to insert a surgical tube that would go up into the dummy and would go out of the mouth producing smoke to give the appearance that that soldier, fake soldier, was smoking a cigarette. They would move this head around above the trench and wait for an enemy sniper to take a shot at it. What would then happen is that the holes that were made by enemy snipers were able to be examined, and from that, you could potentially triangulate the position of the sniper in order to be able to launch an artillery strike upon them. Definitely not a fun time. But hey, that is only one of many crazy techniques that were utilized back during World War I. I honestly think that that would make a fun video to try and talk about stuff. Either way, as I said, definitely not a fun time. But World War I is something that would end, and with that, for a time, the prominence of snipers before... World War II would end up happening. But for many of the nations during this time that before had fielded ready sniper units, the interwar period was something that these didn't necessarily need to be maintained, and so many of them just seemed to stop caring. But with some groups believing that World War II was going to be inevitable, there were a number of different countries that did make sure during this time period to specifically maintain a core of snipers as well as their techniques. And among these, really none could be said to be greater than the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was relatively unique in developing an extensive sniper period between the world wars. First off, what they had done was that they bought optics from Germany and then developed their own from these. The USSR would go on to field two scoped versions of the Molson Nagant M9130 and designed their SVT-40 semi-auto rifles to accept the same fixed four-power PU scope as the Molson Nagant sniper rifle. When looking at the other powers, England and Japan both really struggled with optics and didn't do much with them, while US snipers, though they definitely were good, never really achieved the same fame as their incredibly lethal Soviet counterparts. In fact, fun little detail when looking at this, but out of the top 10 snipers of World War II, 9 out of the 10 were Soviet, and the last one, well, that guy was Finnish. And now that's not to say that other powers were not utilizing snipers. Germany also did field a very effective sniper program. It just wasn't necessarily something that really worked with the tactics of what they were using at the time. Because after all, go figure, Blitzkrieg, lightning tactics, and fast-paced movement doesn't necessarily work very well with snipers. But Blitzkrieg is not something that would ultimately work against the Soviet Union. By the time that the German army became bogged down on the Eastern Front, the German sniper program finally found some ability to develop itself and to perform. And it is from this that sniper battles between German and Soviet forces are truly legendary and would turn many cities in Eastern Europe into a living hell for any soldier to try and wade through. Something that honestly, if I am talking about things in terms of great snipers in history, that is going to be a full-fledged video right there. Still though, considering everything that I have been talking about here today, that is probably going to be a story for another time as I have already talked very extensively about the history of snipers. And this video is at this point probably beginning to drag on quite a bit. But I will end it with this. Snipers are still obviously used in modern warfare to this day. They are used in urban warfare or guerrilla environments such as the Middle East, or even we have seen them in the current Russo-Ukrainian war. And to this day, these are incredibly deadly units. That cannot be understated just how effective a sniper can be. But simultaneously, they are significantly less prevalent than they were around 100 years ago. When we are looking at how warfare has changed over time, the development of mechanized warfare, of modern aerial reconnaissance and strikes, of long-range missiles that are capable of taking out an enemy dozens or even hundreds of miles away, really, the role of long-range attacks when it comes to snipers are things that are not nearly as useful, arguably, in the 
modern day as what they used to be. They are no longer the big deadly killer of the battlefield. For that, we're probably more so looking at drones. But I, again, am saying this right now. If I was doing an analysis on modern sniping and what that means to the current day and age in battlefields, that is something that would probably be an entire video in itself, which I simply do not have the time, or you can probably hear from this, the voice to be able to do right now. You can see from this video how it is that sniping has been able to impact the battlefield over the years, how the changing inaccuracy of weapons was able to completely change the scope of battlefields. And so I'll say this, if you all would like to see a full video on the history of crazy, insane snipers in history, then by all means, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And let me know down in the comment section below whether or not that is something that we should do. I will say this, if this video gets 5,000 likes, then I will go ahead and do a full video on the history of the craziest snipers in history. But also, if there are any subjects that you all would like for me to cover into deep dives in the future, then please let me know. I'm planning on doing more geopolitical deep dives here in the future. I know that I already have some plans to tackle Tunisia, Venezuela, and several other countries and their modern crisis and the story behind them. But whether or not I do any one of those first before that, well, I mean, that's probably going to be determined by YouTube community poll. Anyway, I think I've been talking on for too much. My voice is really hurting at this point. So I think I'm going to go ahead and end things here today. Thank you all very much for watching. I appreciate all of you. And I ask that again, you like, comment, and subscribe. I will see you all next time. And goodbye, my friends. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.